Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Christopher Ketchum for episode number two. And I'm right now, You there's an article that you wrote called The Green Growth Delusion under, I think it's a column called Green Tinted Glasses. So I imagine there'll be more of that uh, articles like it coming out. And it's to me, it's common sense. To me, this is where um, what I found out through my work is that the way I put it is, well, everyone talks about wind and solar as clean, green, and renewable, and they're not clean, they're not green, they're not renewable. And when I tell that to people, they're like, well, that was my only hope. Now I have to give up hope. That's depressing. But it's not depressing unless you think that that's the only way out, but it's not the only way out. And your article, I, th I think is, I mean, I've been putting people to some books like um, Life After Fossil Fuels by Friedemann and... Um, there's also this book by the physicist Tom Murphy, who's been a guest on the podcast, uh, but that's like a textbook. And your article gets it pretty well. And so I had to have you back. Also, we uh, the last time was such a great conversation. I wanted to keep going. Um, should we talk about the article first? Sure. Let's talk about Green New Deal delusions for sure. Yeah. Uh, do you have a top way of putting it off, of starting off? Um well, I think the, I think I, I actually I need to correct you there. I think that, um, you know, on a very small scale over the long term, you could have a, a relatively sustainable supply of energy from wind and solar. The production of the actual units, of course, depends on fossil fuels and is dirty in terms of all the extraction and of, of, of minerals and rare earths needed to produce the technology. But, you know, you could, I mean, imagine you lived off grid way out in the woods in a small commune of 20 people, you could actually have a relatively sustainable society provided energy by wind and solar. So the question is, how do you, how do you scale up to provide energy privileges to 8 billion people, right? To half, roughly half of whom are, are, are living uh, developed or developing countries in the other half um, wish to live energy profligate and uh, hot hyper consumerist lives mimicking the lives of you and I. So the intention of my article was to look at how uh, it is unlikely, at least with current technology and in the current system that uh, so-called renewable energies will be able to subsidize the energy intensive, uh, hyper consumerist, growthist civilization that uh, has arisen with the unprecedented subsidies, energetic subsidies from fossil fuels. We need to abandon fossil fuels, but to do so, I believe, will require some. Uh, some serious sacrifice on the part of uh, people in the developed world where our energy privileges will have to be reduced, if not lost altogether. Yeah. you. So I stated it way too bluntly. So um, certainly windmills in the style of Don Quixote, no problem. And solar power in the form of photosynthesis, no problem. Uh, and yeah, on a small scale, these it's different than trying to do a whole nation on on a grid um, that's the size of 
current or that produces as much power as it currently does. And that points to we don't have to live the way that we do. And there's a I think we so I think it it's the point is not to focus on solar and wind. The point is to focus on how we live, our culture, our beliefs, our role models. And if we steadfastly refuse to change from what we are now, there's nothing that we can do. But that doesn't say that we have to accept things the way that they are, nor that, I mean, you talk about we have to make sacrifices. And I agree, from my perspective, I see us as addicted. And I don't mean that as an analogy. I mean, addicted like a gambler is addicted or a social media person is addicted, which are recognized by the official psychological yeah. associations as addictions. And to get out of an addiction, you generally have to go through some period of withdrawal. And that's really, really hard, especially when you're deep in the addiction. It's hard to see past the withdrawal, except in some, I mean, the withdrawal you see is visceral. The better life that you passed it is imaginary, is like um, abstract in comparison. Yes. And so I don't really think of it as sacrifices. I mean, I guess it's like a heroin user stops using heroin is sacrificing the, the, the euphoria and is going through the addiction, uh, the withdrawal. But I think that, you know, if they really want to get off, they recognize they have got to get through it. And that's the deal. Well, yes. But nonetheless, um, for those of us totally embedded in the system as it stands, um, it is perceived as a sacrifice. And moreover, you have a gigantic propaganda and brainwashing complex called advertising that exists yeah. to make you feel that any, any um, lessening of your energy privileges meaning your life of hyperconsumption, travel, leisure, pursuit of wealth. Any alteration from that chorus is, you know, you look around and you, it's keep, you know, you want to keep up with the Kardashians, right? Did you used to feel that way yourself? I know when I was growing up, I definitely said the phrase, whoever dies with the most toys wins and believed it. And I really loved Ben and Jerry's and, and things that now I, I look back at and like, oh, Ben and Jerry's I pick at as one thing that I, I was addicted to. Like I couldn't, I, I wanted to stop getting it and I kept buying it and kept looking at the empty container at the bottom. You know, it's Doritos and things like that. And people who meet me now, I think a lot of them think I was always like I am now, but I only reached this through self-reflection and learning about how things worked. And I, w I would not have believed I could result where I am. And where I am now, I'm, I, I'm not yet done. I, there's still more to, to learn. Did you transform like that? B would you have believed you could have if you, if you did? Or um, I still eat the Doritos and, the, um, uh, and Ben and Jerry's, but, you know, my my motto is all things in moderation. You know, you, you don't need to go to one extreme or another. That, and that's the problem with our society. Our society is based on lunatic extremes that are called normal. Is I think it's extreme to hop on a plane and fly halfway across the planet for a week vacation. I think it's extreme to um, to have uh, a whole society set up where people are driving hundreds of miles to go to work. It's extreme that you go to a store and everything is in plastic packaging that gets thrown away Ugh. the moment it is the, the 
the food inside the packaging is consumed. I think it's extreme that we are like the food waste in our society is is I, I don't know the actual statistic, but it is it is heinous. It's hideous. It is repulsive. So. So there has to be a middle path, like a Buddhistic middle path that we can chart where we can just stop the extremism, stop the extreme waste and the extreme desires too that drive the waste. Uh, so in terms of my own personal transformation, I mean, I was always, I, I mean, I was thinking about this from very early on. I mean, I, in my, my teens, I was reading Lewis Mumford and E.F. Schumacher and small E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful and reading about the concept of the mega machine about the subjugation of human beings to uh, technology and how there are bribes and promises involved in participation in the mega machine. Um, you know, one of the primary bribes and promises today, for example, is access to the internet, right? We all want our Wi-Fi signal and our computer and, and quote unquote, smart phone. Um, and non-participation in that life of machines is effectively exile. So, and we, you know, again, it comes back to our perception of ourselves in the hierarchy, in the social hierarchy. All around us, we see other people going on spectacular vacations or buying really nice cars or building enormous homes and uh and the the uh, human nature is such that we feel envy and then we feel lousy about ourselves as a result of not achieving that same level of material wealth so i don't know i feel like we're in a real bind and uh, and this is going to be difficult to get out of. It's not going to be easy. And again, to come back to to renewable energies, we want renewable energies to create a kind of climate virtue in material affluence. And I think that's a delusion, a very dangerous delusion, as it will push back the necessary comeuppance right that we need to face in terms of um in terms of what we have constructed the world over uh, a society based on growth and hyperconsumption, which is all necessarily degrading uh the biophysical uh ground the, the very ground on which human survival depends. Yeah, so I'm see, I'm seeing a picture here that if you look at the numbers, and I hope I want to go have you share some of the numbers. I mean, people should I'll have the link to your article, and people can go and look at the numbers in detail. But it points to if we it points to saying there's no tech fix to the problem of our culture, our cultural values. That's what we have to work on. That's right. But that's the right, like, if we're not looking in that direction, we're just going to keep doing the, you know, just going to keep chasing. To me, technology augments the values of the people using it. And we once had values of live and let live and leave it better than you found it and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I, I don't know what time you're left. talking about. When was that? 
certainly, I mean, I, I do a lot of, I study a lot of stuff on the Hadza and the Tsumani and the San. So like definitely a hundred thousand years ago. Oh, a hundred thousand years ago. Absolutely. I thought maybe you're talking about like when America was great or something, or I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm talking, I'm talking definitely before the industrial revolution. Right. So it's industrialism. I mean, Industrial society is inherently unsustainable. It is inherently destructive to ecosystems. It is inherently um, a, a an expanse an, ex, an expansionary enterprise that um, that always always leaves a wake of destruction for the non-human world. So and so, yeah, I think it, human societies prior to industrialism lived on a re- with a relatively light footprint on Earth. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I want to distinguish, and maybe I, I haven't said this out loud yet, but there's industrialization, there's pollution and depletion, but that doesn't, you don't need those for human ingenuity. So it's not saying people can't keep solving prob- new problems in new ways. I mean, people long before the Industrial Revolution found things like antibiotics and um, uh, vaccines and um Anesthesia, right? And I don't, th- I don't see us stopping solving problems. It's just if we restrict ourselves to solving problems, but you can't pollute in the process. Well, we are is- the tool-making breed. I mean, that's what that's what distinguishes Homo sapiens. We make tools. We have uh, complex techniques, um, and I see no problem with tools if they are harnessed by a society that doesn't intend to use the tools to rape and pillage mm-hmm. so yeah you can use to i mean a, a hunter subsistence society has bows and arrows or atlatls and bows and arrows and spears and other tools used to provide subsistence meat there's nothing wrong with that um so so yeah i, I think tool making there's no problem with tool making it's when the technology becomes so overwhelming or rather when when technology becomes itself a a goal just more technology uh, harnessed to a lunatic system of growth and expansion and domination, uh, and undergirded ideologically by uh, a a toxic anthropocentrism. Well, then you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, my big example there. I used to talk about the the Watt steam engine because it was so much more efficient than the engines before, and people thought coal use would go down, but it went up. And a lot of people think that's they they talk about economics and Jevons paradox and rebound effects. But to me, the technology will augment the values of the people using it. But then I came up across, to me, this is a better example. I'm not sure. I mean, to me, the, the, the Eli Whitney's cotton gin is the big one that if it, it supposedly, I mean, if you think less labor for the same output, oh, we can reduce labor. But the people who owned the machines weren't interested in less labor. They're interested in more profit. So, you know, historians will say it was one of the major Lead, one of the things that led up to the Civil War was the Eli Whitney cotton gin. And I, I wonder, what if the cotton fields were owned as collective, collectively owned cooperatives? What would have happened to a cotton gin in such an environment? Might it have been used? It's hard for me to think about that because, you know, I grew up, my parents helped form a food co-op in Philadelphia. And so I grew up knowing that there was like there was the regular stores and that's where they had like the sugar cereals, which we weren't allowed to get. And then the co-op, which it was all fruits and vegetables. And, you know, it was, it, it was not profit. Any profits were distributed to the owners. So it was just used to lower prices. 
And we had to volunteer, or I should say got to volunteer. So we spent some time working there and everyone knew each other. And it's grown and grown, but not growing in like displacing. It's not growing like Whole Foods growing. It's It like has to be welcomed places. People have to bring it in. And so I think of, I don't know, maybe some people, I, I, maybe a lot of people in America would think owned by the people who shop there. What is this, communist? But it was the opposite. I mean, to me, it was like a very small community of people who knew each other at the, at the beginning. Now it's grown. I mean, I, I think that's great. But um, again, we're talking about uh, civilizational scale issues, not um, a couple of employee-owned cooperatives that are small beer in the larger frame of things. Um, well, I'm just thinking about if if the cotton gin had come into a world of where all the all the farms were collectively owned instead of plantation owners with slaves, would that have led to a more peaceful use of the technology? I have no idea, man. I think uh, I think that ultimately uh, technology can. Um, Technology alters human behavior. So it may be that even if the cotton gin were introduced into a society of, you know, of, of fluffy unicorns, um, you, you would probably still have profiteering interests exploiting that technology to, um, produce more growth, um, to exploit labor. Um, that's my take on things, but maybe I'm cynical. I don't know. <laughs> So can you just, what are some of the numbers that were that stood out to you? you there were a couple of podcast guests that you had in the, that you mentioned in the article, um, Mark Z. Jacobson and Mark Mills. Uh-huh. And I just finished um, Vaclav Smil's uh, The Way Things Really Work. Uh-huh. And then you, it was like, uh, I, I'm starting to know the people, all the people uh, who are making the headlines. But what, was there anything that stuck out that like big number, like some of the more important numbers that, for people to think about with solar and wind? Well, and remember, it's not just solar and wind. There's the whole panoply of renewable energies, solar, wind, geothermal, hydroelectricity. Hydroelectricity is by far the most prominent of all, or rather the most productive um, at current rates of the among the um, renewable energy technologies. So most renewable energy comes from hydroelectricity. So in terms of the, the numbers, well, I mean, you mentioned Vaclav Smil. One of the things that Smil mentions in, in that very book, How the World Really Works, is, um, uh, well, how are we going to produce with renewable electricity the four material pillars of what he calls, anyways, the four material pillars of modern civilization, right? Which are cement, steel, plastics, and ammonia. So there is no known technology that can produce a renewable electricity technology that can produce enough heat at scale to manufacture cement, steel, or steel, right? Uh, plastic is entirely dependent on the um, on drilling and production of hydrocarbons. So is ammonia. Ammonia is totally dependent on the production of natural gas. And um, ammonia is absolutely necessary for the uh, for uh, fertilizer to maintain our industrial food system. Without ammonia, without the natural gas inputs that go into ammonia, that go into uh, the soil, 
to maintain the industrial food system will have mass starvation. All right, well, right there, you got a problem. Now, you're asking for numbers. Um, I think it's more important just to look at at, um, at context, right? Context here is cement, steel, plastic, and ammonia are, are sine qua non, right, for the maintenance of the industrial system. Do we need to maintain the industrial system? Then becomes the contextual question. Well, it seems to me we do because so many people are totally dependent on the industrial system and would not survive without it, including you and me. So the industrial system then for its, uh, for its at least short-term survival, if not long-term survival, depends on fossil fuels. If you want to have a society that uses profligate amounts of cement, steel, plastic, and ammonia. So that's Smill's point. Smill also brings up the question about, um, rather he questions these green growth visionaries about um, how you're going to energize flying, shipping, and trucking without fossil fuels. Well, there's, there's, there's no way to do so with current technologies. Or we can stop flying, shipping, and trucking so much, which means the end of the global economy. Well, all right. Then you get into some, then you get into a world of trouble. Um, a world of trouble that is for people wedded to the system as it stands, people dependent on the system as it stands. So, you know, we are, we are really in a bind. Humanity is in a bind um, because in order to keep people alive, we need to keep pumping carbon into the atmosphere. And if we stop doing that, a lot of people who depend on that burning of carbon will perish. And that includes you and me, as I, as I do not cease to, to tell people, right? Because they'll say, oh, you're just, you're just a colonialist. And you want the, I don't know, you want the poor people to die. I'm like, no, man, no, we're, we're all in this together. In fact, hell, if the industrial system went down overnight, the people who would be best situated to survive its collapse are those outside the system who are least dependent on the mega machine for their survival. And by that, I'm talking primarily about uh, indigenous societies. I could totally see... The Hads have been around for something like 50,000 years, and I could see 50,000 years from now, they have this story about these uh, pale-skinned people with wheeled vehicles that showed up like for 50 years and then disappeared. Right. And we think, oh, we're going to conquer the galaxy, and we're going to go to Mars and all this stuff. And on, we could easily burn out, and if we don't take them down with us, we'll just be this little blip for them. All of our dreams of like, you know— Infinite, uh, what, what it called? The, infinite um, growth, infinite growth, yeah. infinite expansion, expansion, you know, planetary expansion. I mean, the lunacy of some of the uh, goals of folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, this, the, these nutcases who think we're going to colonize the solar system. I mean, <laughs> you're talking about crazy people, man. 
and but they're called sane <laughs> they're called sane but it's like whoa no we're not gonna fucking colonize mars man there's no air on mars there's no wine on mars there's no women on mars all right there's no flowers or waterfalls on mars <laughs> did you by any chance watch his recent um he gave some talk about tesla's plans I, I, there's some title for it anyway it's, it was so alluring it was totally based on what um what people want to hear and not based uh, it was really it was really seductive yeah it was really like if you didn't if i if articles like yours didn't exist his it would be persuasive instead of crazy sounding and i think yep. for almost everyone it is persuasive sadly but now i want to go back to you said okay so i asked numbers and you said yeah it's, but it's the um i forget how you put it with the the context or the um the context of for example the, the material pillars of modern civilization okay so if we want to have cement steel um also microprocessors uh long-haul trucking and shipping and, and planes and fertilizer then i think i left one out and plastic plastic so then you said we we can't have to have those things we must have fossil fuels well do we need those things maybe not all right so then well as i understand of all those things one is currently absolutely necessary and that's fertilizers mm -hmm. as long as we have 8 billion people on the planet that's right so but you stopped at this point you said that it would if if it went down it would take us with us, with it but also if people feel that they need this, but what if people don't feel that they need this? I mean, what if we changed culture? Right. Well, but cultures don't change, man. Look at history. Cultures don't change. Cultures are usually locked in to a, a pattern. So you can, you can talk about the what if we change all you want, but I think the reality, um, the reality is that, um, that we're not going to change absent a violent exogenous exogenous shock and uh and then we'll change just like look the coronavirus swept in man february of 2020 and everyone changed overnight well well they complied with what they had to and then they went back yeah i I've been talking about yeah, abolition. But no, but no, no, what I'm saying is they, you, that's right. So there wasn't a cult. Sorry, you're exactly right. There was no cultural change, but there was a change and it was forced. But look at what happened immediately. I mean, I can take an example from uh, uh, something I'm working on right now about, um, about Moab, Utah and tourism there. Well, the whole area around Moab is invaded by industrial tourism which mostly involves the use, the burning of fossil fuels to power um, off-road vehicles. Um, so with the coronavirus, all that was shut down. The residents of Moab breathed easy. They said, my God, this is beautiful. We don't have all the noise and the pollution and the crowds. This is really nice. And then what happened? The state of Utah and the local municipalities that had instituted um, closures of parks and bans on travel from anyone outside Utah, and particularly outside certain counties that are heavily visited normally. Well, 
They opened things up and the tourism was worse than ever. The whole area was invaded to the nth degree. Yeah, I've been using abolition as one of my main role models of culture changing. But recently I've been, and I didn't really know much about it before. And Unplugging from the Grid has given me a lot of time to read. So I read all these biographies of Abraham Lincoln and abolitionism and things like that. But now I'm looking into Reconstruction and seeing how much um, the, the slave-owning culture clawed back in just a few years. Like you, the, the 13th Amendment did make slavery illegal, uh, but they were able to share crop and, and figure out how to restore roughly – I mean, it takes centuries to change. Mm -hmm. Well, look, man, I, I did an assignment just apropos of that comment about the, the um, tenacity of certain cultural tendencies. Uh, I did a, a piece years ago where I was profiling some uh, prisoners in Angola, an Angola prison in Louisiana. And what did I see around me? Well, Angola prison is a former uh, uh, cotton plantation where uh, white men with weapons on horseback presided over black men working in the fields. And what did you see? Well, Angola still... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bunch of black guys working in fields presided over by a bunch of white guys on horseback. <laughs> it ain't changed. So, just a pro like a perfect example of how you know again cultures don't change, and people you know people don't change. That's the thing about it, man. It's like the the progressive view of of humanity is that somehow we're gonna we can just change. We can change the human spirit. No, man. But there are certain embedded qualities in um, in human nature that we just don't that don't change, and that's just the way it is. And uh, we can we can change the systems by which we live, um, and people will adapt and accept it, right? Um, but I think always, I mean, unless you you know. You could change our our civilization, our society, our culture through uh, tyranny, authoritarianism, absolutely. But it would, of course, you know, then then you're pointing a gun at the head of people, and they'll say, "Okay, okay, I'll change, I'll change." <laughs> Don't pull the trigger, right? Um, and that's happened many times in the history of modernity. So. I think you could create a sustainable society quite easily uh, if it was led by totalitarian uh, ecologists who um, who use the force of the state to absolutely alter behavior. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be particularly stable. I don't think. I mean, oh, it could be very stable. It could be very stable. You just you just shoot anyone. You just shoot anyone who gets out of line. Great well, I think that the people in power are going to start abusing their power and they'll start. Well, of course. Which comes back to human nature, right? I mean, look at the history. You were saying you're reading a lot of history. Um, read um, the great book by an author whose name I forget. Um, a People's History about. Our... Oh, uh, Zinn? No, no, no. A People's Tragedy. It's about the. Oh. It's about the. Um, the Russian Revolution, and uh, the, this historian traces the period from roughly 1890 to 1922, 
the, the death of Stalin or death of Lenin, sorry, or 1924, death of Lenin. And um, what does that history show us? Well, the Bolsheviks who gained power immediately appropriated all the wealth of the rich the aristocracy that they had uh, toppled and became themselves aristocrats <laughs> while the people yeah, starved. I never think of totalitarian totalitarian my vision of it is that it it works really well as long as you agree with them but then once it starts going another way you can't stop it and it always will right so maybe yeah maybe it won't be not sustainable but i don't know man i mean liberal interest group politics is not going to work because you're always going to have some interest group that objects to uh to sustainability to true sustainability they're going to say oh that affects my interests and therefore i'm going to lobby the system and uh um, okay then we have to keep polluting in one fashion or another or we have to keep spewing carbon or we have to uh keep on like i mean i don't know imagine Imagine legislators came up with an idea to ban commercial air travel because it's totally unsustainable and it is creating a, it is one of the major, major sources of carbon pollution. Well, so the airline industry, the travel industry, the leisure industry, the advertising industries, marketing, et cetera, et cetera, all rally and destroy any chance of that legislation passing. Yeah, I want to. All right. So I guess one of the things that drives me, I'm thinking about like, is it, should, should I just give up and eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die? And I think that's what a lot of people do. No, 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 absolutely no. Because if you're a person of principle, of course not. No, no way, man. I think that, that you have to, if you have principles, then you stick by your principles. And if your principles are, I do not, I want to leave a better world for my children, then you just got to stick to your principles and act as if, as if, you are changing things, even if the society around you isn't changing. That's how I see yeah. it. Yeah, I have to live by my values. And one of the ways I, I put it is that, I guess, there's a study for, from Cornell that shows that in 2100, there may be a billion climate refugees, there may be two billion climate refugees. And the difference between those is, in part, our behavior today. And even if we can't stop everything, that's a billion climate refugees difference. And... I want to do everything I can to alleviate the suffering. I mean, that's what we're here for is one of the things is like alleviating suffering, especially of innocent people. Absolutely. Where the harm would come from me. Yeah, absolutely. Look, man, I think that, that one has to be realistic and sort of a, a, like a practice of kind of joyous pessimism uh, in which you accept that things are probably not going to change for the better, but you do everything to make them change for the better. Like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill. I think we talked about that last time. Yeah, I remember. So, you know, be, be Sisyphus, love the rock, and know it's just going to roll right back down and everything is meaningless and useless. So there you go. <laughs> the way I think of it is that my I don't evaluate, say, the meaning of my life by things outside of my control. So decades or centuries of, of pollution, we can't, I can't change that they, they've been put out there. No. But so I don't judge my, the quality of my life by things that are happening outside of my control, but the things that are within my control, I can still do everything possible. And now if someone really believed that there was zero effect or it was a counterproductive effect, I, well, I, just the number, I don't see that. It, I see that I have a non-zero effect and therefore I can 
get derive meaning and purpose and value in my life. And the more that I do, the more of it I get. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't conclude into some, um, into giving up. And I, I want to go back to your article because it's, it looks like if someone just, I think that if the average person looked at it without taking time to reflect, which is probably how most people approach these things, but that doesn't mean that they can't reflect, is that it looks pessimistic and it looks like, um, it looks like the la I think a lot of them feel like the last leg of the, of the stool is pulled out from under them. And, but that's not what it's really about. Like the science isn't a set of values. It informs our values. And if we don't know the science, we don't know. It, it informs our actions. And as long as people, I mean, nearly everyone I know thinks that if we simply electrify, we can simply electrify everything. And when we do, the problem solved. And they don't, they have no concept that even if that were, let's just say that were the case, then we would simply grow as we did with the green revolution to where we're using up everything again. Absolutely. Or using beyond what, what we have. You know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of problems with that view of, um, of simply saying all we need to do is electrify the current system. Right. It's very, it's a very narrow myopic and ultimately ignorant view of, of to borrow Smill's phrase, how the world really works because it suggests a total failure to understand the context of um, climate and carbon pollution. As William Reese put it, the, um, the spewing of carbon into the atmosphere and the resultant um, alteration of the climate system is really a waste issue. Among many other waste issues, right? Climate, or rather the, the, the overshoot of the um, atmosphere's uh, capacity to absorb our thermal pollutants, that's only one facet of the broad overshoot of um, inherent now in the human enterprise, right? So we've overshot our um, available fresh water. We've overshot our fisheries. We've overshot the, um, I mean, without fossil fuel inputs, we've overshot the capacity of the soil to feed us. We have um, in our, it just in the endless expansion of the human footprint, material and ecological footprint, we are destroying biodiversity at a rate never before seen. So climate is just one aspect of the the larger what what you know what the limits to growth people in 1972 called the world problematique. And until we view climate in that or as just one as a, as a subset or one part of the broader issue of ecological overshoot, we're never going to be able to solve the real problems facing us. It's just, it becomes denialism effectively. So I, I submit to you that those folks who you know and who I know as well 
who um, who adhere to what amounts to a fundamentalist technological religion that says that all we need to do is decarbonize. I submit to you that they are practicing a form of denialism, a form of ecological denialism. Yeah, I have to pause and say, I really value your this, this, this kind of conversation because I don't have anyone that I can talk to who can talk about these things without losing their shit or just, I mean, the most common thing is in my, of the people I know is, well, look at them. Why should I, like, it's, it's anything but, anyway, I, I, people don't seem to want to learn this stuff. I think they're over, they're, they're just racked with guilt and shame at hearing these things. But please elaborate. What do you mean lose their shit? Um, I was t okay, so I volunteer and I bring food to this uh, overstock food that places are going to throw away. I stick them in a wagon and take them to this community fridge. And there's a group of – they're not homeless because most of the stuff has to be cooked. But it's poor people and they're getting free food. So this one woman – and they all know about me and being off the grid and uh, the sustainability stuff. And they watch videos of me and things like that. And so one of them she, – she points to – there's this company called – I don't know. They make little uh, bite size or like lunch size salads that they put in these plastic cups. And they're sturdy so they can be reused. And she goes, Well, what about this? You know, I can reuse this. And I say, Well, how many of them are going to reuse? Because, I mean, that works for one, but you, if you buy them daily, you're eventually flooded with them. And she goes, Well, I give them to people around me. I'm like, Okay, they fill up too. And everyone has enough containers. No one needs more of these things. And she's like, and suddenly she starts flipping out of, uh, not flipping out. I, I should just say, just going off topic. Cause it was a, it was a, a lovely conversation. Um, but she was like, well, look at my landlord does this and he heats it up and he can't do it. like, and the person next to me was watching this and she's like, she says to the woman, like, Josh is just pointing out that you can't, like, he's pointing out that this is not a sustainable thing. This thing that in her, in her hand, the salad container. And she wouldn't address the thing in her hand that she actually came to talk to me about. Like she wanted to hear, yeah, reuse that. And now it's sustainable. And I didn't say that. And she would talk about anything, but that because she wanted to use, she wanted the salad. I don't know if that makes sense. Or if I talk to my mom, she, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify things, but like she grew up on a farm and it was in South Dakota in the summers, it was 100 degrees all the time. You open the screen door for a second and the mosquitoes cover you. And so she'll say, Josh, I, I appreciate that you do all this stuff. And I try to do some too. But I do not want to go back to no air conditioning and, and no respite from the mosquitoes. Mm. So I'm happy to avoid straws, but I'm not, I do not want to go back to that. No one wants to go back to that, Josh. And you don't know it because you've been comfortable, but you don't know... Like, I, I don't want to go back to that. So she won't, uh, that's the end of story and try to talk about more. And she's like, look, talk to Bill Gates. There's someone who's polluting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear that. I don't, I love air conditioning. Man. So I, I don't mean, I don't mean lose your shit. Like, like um, they flip out and get angry. It's more like, it's just den denial and will not address. It's like this. Um, yeah, but let's be honest, man. Let's be. I, I will be. I, how about this? I will be honest. I love air conditioning when it's real. I, I mean, the humidity of the Northeast drives me nuts. That's why I lived out in the desert for so long. 
So I love air conditioning. I think it's great. But is it sustainable? Hell no. <laughs> you, I mean, again, again, it all depends on like, uh, how about this? You want to have some air, like if you want to lower the, the total energetic footprint, all right, we'll have air conditioning, but I don't know, the electricity is off for th- three hours of the day or something like that to balance it out, which of course is what some countries in Europe were uh, practicing um, with the cutoff of Russian fossil fuels this winter. So we've well, written about population too. And to me, I mean, all right, if I, if I forget about middle steps, we don't have to live in the desert. We don't have to live in places that are, I mean, we don't have to, I mean, first of all, long before the Industrial Revolution, people lived, say, above the Arctic Circle, or I guess they wouldn't need air conditioning. But Well, you don't need air conditioning, in the de- but you don't need air conditioning in the desert. That's what, That was my point. Yeah, I guess I would say rainforest. I mean, I was talking to someone who spent some time in the rainforest of Ecuador, and she was like, it was super hot and humid, but everyone was comfortable for some reason. Well, because they adapted the conditions, the existing conditions. And, you know, it's, I mean, if you, again, it's all personal preference. But I think we're getting a little off topic here, man, because like a personal preference is fun, but the, the, the industrial system as a whole is what matters. Individual change, unless, um, unless it becomes mass change, is kind of not relevant. Right. It's, it's, you know, in terms of the, the, larger issue and yeah i mean no one likes mosquitoes and no one likes humidity not one person on earth likes humidity but you'll tolerate it if you have to i guarantee you that the folks in ecuador if they had a choice if they had the money and if they had the energetic inputs would put the air conditioning in (laughs) right so yeah that I, i i don't see i mean george Mambiot, or how do you pronounce his last name, by the way? Oh, Mom- yeah, Mambiot, Mambiot. Mambiot? Yeah, I don't know. Is it, I always see it Mambiot. Is it French? Georges Mambiot? Anyways, well, he's whatever, British. whatever his name is, um, uh, he was say, he calls it micro-consumerist bollocks. And yeah, he's kind of right. Micro-consumerist bollocks. Yeah, so... Uh, well, let, let's talk population a bit, because if yeah. the population is a lot lower, and we have to say, you know, not through one-child policies and stuff like that, but let's just say that, you know, human beings get together and somehow um, in ways that have worked in, on a national scale, we do it on a global scale, and we get the population down to 2 billion people. Or, you know, some, something that's well below overshoot, and people can consume a fair amount and pollute a fair amount, but it's within what earth can regenerate so it's not plastic pollution but um that that doesn't break down but like wood fires and they existed long before humans did well let's say we do that we're not going to do that though yeah i uh not going to happen it's not going to happen again absent exogenous shocks that produce mass death so well you know that i mean the because of the time delays in the system if we act when that's like saying we'll hit the brakes on the car when the fender hits the wall. Yes. And in the meantime, we're going to accelerate. So that, that's, but that tells me that, so it could possibly lead to extinction, but I, we're pretty well dispersed throughout the planet. So maybe not extinction, but I feel like then we're going to have, I feel like that's, so say the Hadza survived that 
and a bunch of others indigenous places and maybe some other places people survive and they, they're not indigenous now, but they before they go extinct, they figure out how to live off the land. Then I still feel like there's going to be a long period of um, birth defects and all the effects of all the plastic and all the radiation that might come. If oh, there's no, no it'd be a long period of warfare. And also just just like a very unhealthy place to live, the whole planet. I mean, right now the beaches are all messy. Yeah. So, I mean, look, you know, I I have a lot of conversations with people who say, what if, what if, what if? Well, I'm, I'm tired of what if. Let's just look at the reality of things. Past behavior is usually an indicator of future behavior. So what's our past show us? Well, let's just take carbon emissions for one example. Richard Hansen. Is it Richard Hansen? The NASA guy? Yeah. Is uh, it Richard? Anyway, Hansen. I forget, but he testifies in front of Congress in 1988 about, you know, greenhouse gases, global warming. And thereafter, you've got 26 conferences of the parties and multiple international treaties and parlays at Paris and Kyoto and blah, 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 as Greta Thunberg so eloquently put it. And what's been the result? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing has been the result. There's been no change. There's more carbon in the atmosphere than ever. That, to me, suggests, or rather, my reading of the past 40 years suggests the next 40 years are going to be very similar. Now, again, people say, oh, that's cynical, man. We can, you have to believe in progress. You're, well, no, I, I just think we got to be realistic. We got to be realistic, you know. And meanwhile, let's do everything to monkey wrench that system. Let's do every, everything to oppose it, to destroy the powerful elites that profit from that system. Absolutely. But let us not fall prey to delusions that um, that we're going to win. We're not going to win. We're not going to win. So, but you got to keep on fighting. It's like the Rebel Alliance, man. It's like Star Wars, but the Rebel Alliance just loses all the time. <laughs> there you go. All right, I'm going to give my views. And uh, I'd love your thoughts. Because... I look back and I do see counterexamples to the main. Uh, there's a few role models that come to mind for me. Oscar Schindler is one. Uh, what he did was not good for business. I'm not saying that he changed the system. I'm saying that he did something and uh, his life was better for it. Uh, Robert Carter III in 1791 began to free, he freed the most number of slaves before the uh, Civil War, 500. And he didn't. Make he didn't change the whole system, and his neighbors were really pissed at him, but he still did it. But I mean, what if Thomas Jefferson, if he'd been able to influence Thomas Jefferson before he was president or when he was president, he because he was Jefferson was really into freedom, uh, but he had slaves at home, and yeah. so that undermined. And he was very racist. Yeah, he's really into freedom. <laughs> yeah, and so, but he could have changed, and he could have been. He could have been. Could have been someone in the White House who was an abolitionist back then. I mean, I believe that when I, I've worked with people who are all over the political spectrum and all different working in, in corporate places, and I walk them through the Spodic method, and they change for intrinsic reasons. Yeah, it's one person at a time, but 
maybe someday, I believe that I'll someday reach some people who are very influential and they will take it upon themselves to, they'll find, I will help them find in themselves the values that we've lost over the past several centuries, maybe millennia, but that I think are deeply ingrained of doing to others and, and leave it better than you found it and live and let live. And I could see something, okay, another thing that happened, on, something happening like, um, again, on a small scale, I don't want to, I'm not trying to say this is more than it is, but it did happen that New York City banned cigarettes in the workplace and all the restaurants and bars said, we're going to go out of business because people can just go right across to New Jersey. And two and a half years later, New Jersey had to ban cigarettes because people were coming to Manhattan for the cleaner air. Mm-hmm. And people didn't know. And also, I don't. I'm sure I told you about the not just bikes video series and how Amsterdam was going to build in the 60s or 70s a big highway system, so it would be like Houston. And the people lay down in the streets and said no, and they stopped the highways from tearing down what most people know of as Amsterdam. It was car uh, choked up with cars at the time, and making some mistakes along the way, but generally trial and error getting to where they are now and still going of making the city bikeable. And people, I mean, I thought it was just always like that. I thought it was a medieval city that never changed and somehow it worked with bikes, but it was deliberate. Okay. So since cigarettes are, so um, in the time that cigarettes were banned from New York city's uh, bars and restaurants and other um, locales, and in the time that uh, Amsterdam fought off this highway proposal, what have been the measures of ecological health globally? Well, yeah, they've all they've all accelerated. Every single one of them has gotten worse. Um, every single measure of ecological health has gotten worse. That to me is what we need to be looking at. And I mean, let's put it this way: What if we improve the human environment, the human predicament? And uh, to the point where, wow, we're just great. And but to make to, to maintain our greatness, our our personal health, societal health, whatever it might be, we have to pillage the planet and wipe it clean of its life, so that Homo sapiens is the sole dominant creature on Earth. Well, we're already well on our way towards that, man. I think a lot of people would look forward to it. I think they have this vision of Star Trek of like, well, are there were there any plants on the Enterprise? I don't think so. I never thought about that. Yeah, no, so there were some plants like Spock would like to talk to a plant occasionally. He'd do a mind meld with a fern. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Still, there were none on the bridge. There was not. It was just like. Yeah, I mean, oh, dude, I mean, who wants to live in, in a world like Star Trek? Who wants to live on a spaceship? Nobody. Nobody in their right mind, unless they're a fucking lunatic, wants to live on a spaceship. Right? I want to live. Well, I think people imagine a world in which we don't need plants. It's all vertical farmed and somehow there's no garbage. Yeah, somehow there's no garbage. Right. It's just nuts. It's just fantasy. Just a deluded fantasy. A deluded fantasy. And at the same time, a, a couple with perversity. Again, like I said, I I don't want to go to Mars. There's no there's no random sex in meadows of wildflowers on Mars. So what 
the what's the purpose of going there? Yeah, usually with that one, I, I point out to people what's been pointed out to me is like if we could do Mars, then certainly we could build a comfortable climate on on um, under the sea or at the top of Everest because that's a lot easier. There's yeah. a lot more oxygen, yeah. and we can if we forgot a tool, we can just go up and get it right. from the ocean. And and we can't do that. We can't build. We can't terraform. We have no ability to terraform Antarctica. Exactly. Except to melt all the ice through warming. Yeah, right. So, I mean, come on. Enough. <laughs> Just enough of, the, of these stupid fantasies. Um, yeah. I mean, not so much fan- I think it's. I think it's a really great money-making technique for, for Musk. I, I don't mean great in like I like it. I just mean I think that he's just – he recognizes this huge demand for feeling good about um, – feeling good about fixing things. Right, right. I think he's making a lot of money from people on that feeling. And he'll tell them what it takes. Uh, people buy Teslas for the climate virtue. I mean, all right. How about get rid of cars? <laughs> yeah, I would say um, the way I usually put it is since I live in New York, I talk about the cross Bronx, which, you know, they built it. And next thing you know, the Bronx is burning and it wrecked the whole place. And I don't know if you've read Power Broker. Yep, and I have. So you build... So if we build the roads, people don't want to live next to the roads and they wreck the neighborhoods where they are. People want to live at the far end of it. So I want to rewild the the roads, the highways coming – start with the highways coming into cities and let people – people adjusted to create the suburbs and people adjust to move back in from out of – to not live in the suburbs. And I point out how the Embarcadero Highway in San Francisco, people had analyzed and said we'd be better off without it. And no politician would would agree. Be, I mean, no one would act on it because how can you tear down something that they spent so much money to build? An earthquake came and they realized they had to take it out. And lo and behold, no one wants it back. It's better without it, as the analysis said. If we take these roads out, it's going to be like the cigarettes. People are going to feel like, oh, no, we can't lose these. And then when they're gone, they're like, oh, man, this is this. – or what you talked about with the, um, the Moab stuff, except that was forced on them temporarily – if there had been a leader there who could say this is something we could save, I don't know. Yeah, to me, I'm really big on, on rewilding highways and it, it has to give people time to move. But um, as long as the highways are there, people are going to say, well, I want to drive on them. But if the highways aren't there and you have some city planning to make the cities work, you know, I'm thinking in in a style of Amsterdam, but of course there'll be different cultures, different takes on it. But I see people not wanting to go back. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, even if we can't fix anything else, if we just took out the highways, just take out the Cross Bronx Expressway. <laughs> okay, go for it, man. You should get out there with some dynamite and start blowing it up. You're yeah, fill it in with a bunch of uh, soil. Because some parts of it are below ground, below grade. So, but so to the point, uh, to your point, you mentioned Moab, right? Moab, Utah, where tourism is the um, un- the underpinning of the entire economy. You know, the people who were living there during the lockdown were, of course, recipients of um, the uh, uh, pandemic payouts, right? Pandemic subsidies and uh, the pandemic unemployment, and so they're basically on the dole. But if they didn't have that, right, they'd be screaming for the return of the tourism economy because their whole the whole town 
of six, roughly 6,000 people depends on a massive annual influx of people coming to visit the national parks and coming to drive their um, off-road vehicles in the backcountry of the Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest Service public lands that are all around Moab. Um, so therein, you have a perfect, perfect example of um, being trapped in a system of destruction, right? Tourism accounts for something like 8 to 10% of all greenhouse gases. It's incredibly destructive to local communities in terms of um, in terms of housing costs, cost of living, lowered, reduced wages. But nonetheless, people are in Moab, in particular, are trapped in dependence on that on that system that ultimately has so many negative effects. Um, and so, it's a microcosm of of our Everything. being trapped. It's a microcosm of our being trapped in the mega machine. Right, we are we are damned if we do with the mega machine, and damned if we don't, or if we go without the mega machine. Problem, big problem. I feel like we actually on what to do. Both you and I have the same conclusion. It's like we, we, everything we can, and to be true to ourselves. Although you have a Sisyphean view of Okay, nothing means anything. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it right, but um, but we can still live the way we live. And to me, it's I still think I can make a difference. It's meaningful, but the, the end result is we both see the same behavior. We just have different, slightly different reasons for it. I mean, sure, we see the same behavior. I, I mean, I I agree with you though that you got to just keep on fighting for the good. All right, let's put it this way. I have uh, written hundreds of articles, hundreds and hundreds of articles. And I don't think one of them has changed anything. Not a thing. And, but I'm going to keep still gonna write hundreds but I'm gonna keep on doing it. Yeah. So there you go. Well, and we both agree we've got to undo the ignorance driving and this like people so much want to hear Here's a solution that doesn't require you to change, just maybe a couple dollars extra here and there. And so I don't even know if they're I mean, certainly there's charlatans who are like, well, let's get some easy money here from people who there's high demand and zero supply. So I'll supply something and before they know it, it'll be too late. I'll get the money. But I think there are a lot of people who actually believe what they're saying. What do you, what's your read on Mark Jacobson? Well, I think he's a. He's a technophile, techno-saviorist, techno-messianist who truly believes that um, that our machines will save us and allow us, and, and that renewable energy will allow us to subsidize um, energy profligacy into the future. He's just he's just the normal, everyday technocrat. It's a commonplace thing in our society. There was a piece in the New York Times not long ago about um, a loosely affiliated group of technophiles that call themselves the Decarb Bros. Uh-huh. 
Well, they're a bunch of fucking idiots. They're ignorant. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. It's like ignorance coupled with avarice. Basically, they're saying, just as Jacobson says, just as Elon Musk says, just as all the technocratic elites will assure us that markets coupled with innovation, coupled with technology, coupled with economic growth will allow us to find our way through this valley of the shadow of climate death to the other side where again there's going to be you know the there's going to be unicorns and the and the purple dinosaurs and and everyone's going to be eating priuses or i don't know what and um we're gonna have edible priuses made out of hemp uh you know and fueled fueled by rainbows so Jacobson, this whole, the Descartes bros, Jacobson, Musk, they're all the same ilk. They are believers in the, um, in the mega machine and all they, all you need to do in their vision is tweak the energetic inputs to the mega machine and everything will be fine. And again, this misses the whole point that ecologists are warning us about that the mega machine is the fucking problem, people. It's what's producing overshoot. It's what's rampaging across the earth, driving biodiversity crash, just to take one example of its effects. So, Mark, look, I'm sure Jacobson, most of these people, maybe barring Musk, who I think is a sociopath, but most of these people have good intentions but they're just weak-minded. They're weak-minded and deluded. Yeah, I would say just deluded. I mean, we like um, not willing to not willing to face certain things. I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, to me, a weak-minded person is someone. Yes, someone who doesn't face reality. Yeah, it reminded me of when I was a little kid. I finally found this article from the '80s when I was a kid. And my mom actually knew this family. And it was a story about how it was a, a family that was pretty well-to-do and the son was taking cocaine and this was the 80s. So it wasn't like, I don't know what the situation was, but the father was just like, he's a good kid. Like the car goes missing. The silverware is is gone. And he's like, he's a good kid. And they just like the evidence is overwhelming. And they're just like, he's a good kid. There's something it's, and that's, I feel like that's us. Yeah. Yeah, except the quality of the the quality of the cocaine has gone way down. <laughs> so it's really that's really that's the really sorry part of all this, man. I wish I could get some good coke, but no. <laughs> How about uh, Donella Meadows and Dennis Meadows? Donella and Dennis Meadows, yeah, I think they're prophets in our time. They're the co-authors. Donella Meadows, who's uh, worked with Dennis Meadows, they were a couple at MIT to write the Limits to Growth Report of 1972. And I think they're absolute visionaries. No one listened to them, of course. Um, and they, and every single review is like, they will, no one gets the point of Limits to Growth because everyone reads, they, they read like the first graph and they say, well, they're predicting doom and a story. And they say, oh, it's oversimplified. And therefore, it they're they're missing some. You can pick out pick out some detail of some non renewable resource that's different than some other non renewable resource, and then they say, "Well, it's invalid." And to me, they're 
actually here's tell me if this is if this is your read of it as well that they 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 have this model and there's a lot of unknowns in terms of the input but the, and there's also a lot of unknowns about um or rather how the system can evolve can depend on choices that we can make and so they want to point out the effects of different th- different choices that we can make like it's a leadership tool to understand the playing field the 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 territory that we're in what happens in if you move in this direction what happens if you move in that direction it wasn't making predictions although now with 50 years of data we can look at the simulations and say did any of them correspond to what happened and if so, if something fit for 50 years, there's a reasonable chance it might fit for 55, 60 years. And- well, that was exactly my point of history um, predicting future behavior. So the limits to growth report projected um, trend, basically the, the limits to growth people at MIT uh, fed the growth trajectory of the world economy from 1900 to 1970 and extrapolated from those trends to project where the economy would go from 1970 through the year 2100. If you look at their projections, they're absolutely spot on as compared to the real world data that we now have for growth from 1970 to 2022. They were absolutely spot on, absolutely accurate. Well, there were lots of simulations and of the simulations, a couple of them were spot on, and a couple of them were different. I mean, no, they no, were almost all almost all the projections for population. Oh, oh, for just until now, okay, just until now, until now, uh-huh. or until very recently. Yes. So what I'm saying is that the most likely path we will face, or the most li- likely path we will trace, will be the one that the limits to growth people um, projected, which is that we'll keep on growing, growing, and growing until we face collapse. And then the system will fall apart. That's most likely. If if you're going to accept the what, what seems to me the axiom that the past behavior predicts future behavior. If you're a deluded idealist, okay, then you'll say, well, we're all going to change overnight, and everything's going to be. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't. I don't think that's the reality, man. I think that the reality is that uh, that the limits to growth people were right, and that industrialism, techno-industrial civilization, is likely doomed to destroy itself because of its um, ambitions. Yeah, and, and lack of uh, responsibility for where the where it leads. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, because. Yeah, is there any other resources that you look at with the same regard as limits to growth? What What do you mean? To me, like that, they really—I mean, you call the profits, and I there's not—I don't know of another resource. You mean liter? When you say resource, you mean literature? Are there books? Literature? Are there oh, books? Oh, literature. Or- yeah, of course. Well, E.F. Schumacher's "Small Is Beautiful," the blueprint. Um, Blueprint for Survival, published by The Economist magazine the same year as Limits to Growth, 1972, or maybe it was 1973. E.F. Schumacher's um, Small is Beautiful comes out in 1973. Those are three books right there that are um, that form the, the ground of literature that um, excoriates the growthist model. You can look at um, 
all the work of the degrowth school of the degrowth school of economics. So for example, Herman Daly, who recently died, uh -huh. um, the great economist from the university of Maryland, uh, a guy named, um, I forget his name, George N. Rajescu, or, well, I forget his name. Um, he's another economist, uh, today, Jason Hickel, who wrote a book recently called Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, or the Planet, something like that. So, yeah, there's... Do any of them go into the numbers as much as... I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't... I, I've been taking notes of what to follow up on. But I feel like they... they I mean, they made predictions... They made predictions of... The graph showed 11 variables, mm -hmm. which are, there's no reason. I mean, they, they should, you'd expect them to be correlated in some way, but the way that they move is so different. Like to be able to track 11 wildly different things like that and get them accurate is to me, yeah, the, the odds of that being off seem very low. And I don't know anyone else who's gotten into that kind of detail, that kind of understanding, that. Not just detail, but well, understanding. Hold on a second. The limits to growth report has a lot of limits in itself. It was done with what was what was then a a, a pretty pretty simple computer. Uh, the model itself did not take into account. Um, well, the, one of the criticisms of the limits to growth report was that it didn't account for um, human complexity. Um, yeah, was, and and, uh, and and you just just ran, stochastic events that might intervene either for the good or for the bad. Um, so I, I don't think we should linger too long on limits to growth as being the 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 um, uh, as being the apogee of study, right? In this field, it, it's not. There's a lot. There's better stuff today. I'm just saying that for its time. It was pretty advanced. Okay. And the data that the or the projections for you know the, the human material footprint for GDP growth, population growth, food production, industrial production, and all the other various factors that they uh, that the limits to growth people charted from 1900 to 1970, and then as I explained earlier using that data to extrapolate where the world economy would go from 1970 to the year 2100. There's no, um, there's no way to, or rather they, they, they got it right. Their projections were, were pretty accurate. Um, so, but it, but again, I, I will emphasize there's uh, there's a lot more literature on this subject today. That's more advanced than limits to growth. And is is that what you're talking about, um, Hickel? Yeah, Jason Hickel, for example, does less is more. I mean, that is a great book. It's a everyone who is interested in these matters should read less is more. I mean, I, I'll just uh, I want to pull up my um, my truth dig piece about. Um, uh, green the Green New Deal delusions, and just read a little section here that is basically citing Hickel in terms of his recommendations for where we need to go. Right, so Hickel and other degrowthists point out that the only way we can feasibly decarbonize fast enough to meet the Paris Agreement goals and reduce other ecological pressures 
is to scale down industries and activities that we obviously do not need. And you know, here's a short list. SUVs, private jets, yachts, fast fashion, industrial beef, commercial air travel, arms, advertising, and so on. We should not be devoting energy and materials to producing these things in the middle of a climate and ecological emergency. Instead, we should focus the economy on what is really necessary to support good lives for all within planetary boundaries. This requires dramatically reducing the purchasing power of the rich and ensuring universal access to livelihoods, affordable housing, and necessary public services. That's how to avoid collapse but it will will require some kind of a revolution then because, you know, what Hickel is saying is this has got to be a class war, a class war of most of us against the rich. Is that going to happen? Yeah, probably not. Again, history being our, our, you know, our guide to future behavior. Probably not going to revolt against the rich, especially in the United States, because, you know, as John Steinbeck once said, a poor man considers himself simply a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. In this country, yeah. <laughs> Just temporarily embarrassed. That meaning, you know, he's he's going to get there someday. He's going to be a millionaire someday. It's just nonsense, of course. All right, let me go into a different direction. What, what are you working on next of, of your next several articles? Um, well, I'm doing a piece, um, a follow-up piece to this Green New Deal delusions about the fight over Thacker Pass in Nevada, where a lithium mine is planned and uh, activists have been, um, have been encamped in the past to uh, stop the development of the mine there. And then I'm going to look broadly at... Um, green technologies and the amount of mining that will be necessary to build out all those green technologies. And of course, the hidden message there is that, well, it ain't green if you have to mine it. So is there any way, is there any way we can have a green mining? Uh, no, because it is literally digging into the earth and leaving toxic materials in your wake. Uh, so there's that. I'm working on a piece about wild horses in the American West. Um, I'm doing a piece about eco-sabotage uh, and profiling a guy for Harper's who was uh, uh, sent to federal prison for six years for acts of eco-sabotage. Is he there now or is he out? No, he's out. He's out. Um, I'm, uh, what else? Yeah, I'm working on tons of pieces. Uh, I'm doing an investigation of the Sierra Club. Oh, wow. For its its woke inanities, its repudiation uh -huh. of its founder, John Muir. Yeah. And it's... It's uh, like, it's just completely shifted. Yeah, it's just shameful, dude. It's shameful and hideous what's happened to the Sierra Club. Um, so, uh, what else, man? I mean, just I got tons of articles I'm working on. Oh, I'm working on a piece about noise pollution and how it drives people mad. Mm -hmm. Like literally, 
literally drives people crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, causing noise pollution is child abuse because um, of its you know, especially negative effects on infants and toddlers, young children. So there you go. That's that's a snapshot of the various things I'm writing at the moment. And then, of course, I'm doing it. I'm doing a piece about overpopulation and uh, why we won't talk about overpopulation. I really think that's important. Man, I want to read all of these articles, especially the last one. Yeah. Well, it's just, again, it's woke. I mean, this political correctness, woke, just the whole uh, woke thing, turning people's brains to mush. It's really, really sad to behold, man. It's sad to watch people's brains melt <laughs> under the effects of ideology. Yeah, especially when it affects us. Yeah. So. All right. And I hope to bring you back for more conversations. Absolutely, man. All right. So um, anything like any last second thing to before we wrap up to say to listeners? Well, I think listeners should... Um, give due consideration to the school of degrowth and really try to understand what those folks like Jason Hickel are saying uh, and try to keep an open mind about, um, about the perils of growthism, which dominates our whole civilization and the promises of degrowth so that we can look at a future economy not based on expansion uh, and domination, appropriation and expropriation, right? But one that's based in humility, altruism, and fealty to Mother Earth, as opposed to fealty to profits and power. That would be my message to listen. Oh, and tell us about denatured. Oh yeah, so denatured is my um, my journalism nonprofit, and I'm always looking for help from listeners, readers, fellow citizens who can make a 100% tax deductible contribution and keep me writing. Yeah, and everyone, if you haven't read it before this, go to the link, read the Green Growth Delusion and other articles that have come out since. If this is later than now. Uh, uh, Christopher Ketchum thank you very much and let's talk again soon alright thanks a lot man how many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment but I call the future step by step this podcast is creating a culture of joy community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values again there's no profit in buying and wasting less but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do I can use your support please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.